Father God, we are gathered here um, to uh, not simply sing songs, not simply hear scripture passages, not simply have our kids get taken care of in another room uh, where they learn about Jesus, but Father, we are gathered here so that we can encounter the living God. That somehow through the fellowship of other believers, somehow through uh, the singing of worship to you, somehow through seeing your glory in Scripture, we see you with the eyes of our hearts. And I'm asking right now, Father, that you'd remove every distraction, that you'd remove everything that would hinder us from taking in all that you have uh, for us today from your word. Um, and I, I pray right now, Father, that you would uh, remove anything from my mouth that would be errant or wrong, um, and that you would only, uh, in as much as you are graciously willing to, um, express to your people today, Father, the absolute truth of your word, Father. Commend the truth to our hearts, my heart included, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. If you've got your Bibles, please open them to Colossians 3. We've been uh, going on a trek through the book of Colossians, and we are just passing through uh, right now the beginning of Colossians 3. We're going to start at verse 5 today. And we've been in a series the last few weeks, if you've been with us, that is looking at how Paul is telling the Colossian church how they should fight their sin. How do, you fi- how do you make war on the things that are earthly in you, your sins, your natural disposition, our natural disposition, and the natural disposition really of every person, human being, everyone who's fallen, to dishonor God in word or deed. And so we've got one more week in this series after this week, um, God willing. Um, but this week's really important because we're going to look at the details of the battle. Um, we're going to look at how we specifically fight our sin on a day-to-day basis. And so let's take a look at Colossians 3. We're going to read verses 5 through 8. So verse 5 starts like this. Paul says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. So like I said, the title of this series and the focus has been Killing Sin. And that title comes specifically from this passage where Paul says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Literally, kill what is earthly in you. Kill your sin, Paul is saying. And this is a critical week because everything we've talked about so far, as significant and as important as it is, has really just been foundation. It has been the basis by which we fight the fight of faith, by which we fight this war against our sin. And it's not unimportant. None of the weeks that came before, they're very critically important, but they are the basis. They are the root of what we're looking at today. So Paul says in verse 5, we just heard it, put to death what is earthly in you. And then in verse 8, he says, you must put them all away. And he's got these two lists that he lists off in these, these verses so that we're not confused about what he's talking about when he says, what is earthly. So when Paul says, what is earthly in you, he's not talking simply about human practices. He's not simply talking about material reality like the earth. He is talking about sin, about things that we do naturally to dishonor God. 
And so the first list he's got here is sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which Paul calls idolatry. And Paul says these things, these earthly things, are earthly because they arise out of human nature naturally. No one needs to teach us to covet. That's not a learned behavior. No one needs to teach us to envy. We know how to do these things naturally as we breathe um, because they're part of our nature. Because of the fall and because of sin, these things manifest in the human condition naturally. And if you look closely at these, there's a recurring theme in these, this first list. The recurring theme in this first list is that all of these take something in order to gratify a desire we have. They take something that, that is outside of God's design to gratify a desire we have, and it's rooted to some degree in selfishness, allowing desire, our own personal desires, to take the place of God. So for example, sexual immorality is fulfilling a desire with no regard for the proper framework that sexual activity was always designed by God to be enjoyed. Or coveting. Coveting is when you desire something more than what God in his infinite wisdom has given you. That's what coveting is. And so everything in between those two um, bookmark, uh, those two um, bookends basically affect the same, they're the same facet. They're taking whatever we want, irregardless of what God desires. And the really interesting thing about this is Paul refers to coveting as idolatry, which isn't logically, like in modern uh, parlance, we wouldn't really consider coveting one and one with idolatry, but Paul does. And he says that idolatry, which is wanting anything more than you want God, it's when you put something in God's place, that if you look in the Old Testament that idolatry is often depicted hand-in-hand with sexual immorality. And I don't think Paul's created these two bookends accidentally. He's encompassing every desire and inclination in the human heart to have things that they should not have or to have something in a way that they shouldn't have it. And all of these point to a disregard of God's design in order to take something that, that's not ours. That's the essence of what idolatry is. That's the essence of what all of these things are. But Paul doesn't stop there with that list. He has a second list here. And there's a distinction between the two. In verse 8, he says, Now you must put them all away. And he says, Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. So now Paul isn't just engaging on one end our desire to take things that don't belong to us. He's also engaging our desire to hate, naturally. Our inclination to have hostility towards other people. So there's a natural desire in the heart of man to have enmity towards others. This doesn't mean that everyone's walking around in seething rage. This doesn't mean that everyone's walking around trying to push people down and be mean and cruel. But it does mean that our innermost thoughts and passions aren't naturally gracious to other people. Um, more often than not, we are in our actions and even in our just desires, mercenary and not loving. We think, even if we wouldn't admit it, higher of ourselves than we ought to, and then we think lower of others than we probably should. And even if we know it's not right, even if we know it's wrong, this is our default response. For example, it's easier for us to slander somebody who's done something wrong 
than for us to defend them. It's easier for us to be malicious towards somebody who hasn't been friendly to us than for us to love them. And I know that there's an argument that would say, well, that's not me. That's not me. I always try to see the best in people. I always try to see the best in people. And that's a very optimistic statement. The problem with that is that if you think about it for a moment, the very statement, I try to always, implies that it doesn't come naturally. It's not the default disposition. You have to try. There is an effort involved. that You have to break your natural inclinations not to see the best in other people. And so I don't need to prove this, really, because you just turn on CNN for five minutes and look at the state of the world, and you can see that this is the default attitude of humanity. This is the default human condition. If you consider in across the world every atrocity that's been committed by people, every action that's been towards incivility and away from peace, you can see this. this, is, this does, those don't arise de novo out of nothing. Those come from a heart condition, and that heart condition is the human heart doing what it does best, preserving itself, enjoying itself, sometimes, usually, at the expense of others. So we do not naturally love our neighbor. We don't naturally feel that inclination. We love ourselves and preserve ourselves. And so we have these two comprehensive lists that Paul's saying. These are, these are pervasive lists that basically encompass the two main defects of humanity, the two main conditions of humanity. We, we, we often take what's not ours and desire what's not ours to have, by putting them in the place of God, and then we see ourselves as better than others. We don't love our neighbors naturally. And interestingly enough, these violate the first and second commandments. The first commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. And if you're familiar with the Bible at all, you know that these didn't come out of left field. These aren't just random uh, statements. Paul is looking at, the scriptures are looking at the first two sins that were ever committed. Adam and Eve did not love the Lord their God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. And Cain certainly did not love his brother like he loved himself. And so Paul, when he holds out these two massive lists, he's really drawing up for us everything that's wrong with the human condition, everything that's broken about humanity. And at the center of them, he says something really serious. He says in verse 6, On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And what he means is that God's response to these two lists that Paul's held out isn't indifference, it isn't ignorance, it isn't neglect, it is justice. God's response is justice, and the just and holy response of God to these things, the appropriate response for him, is wrath, holy, righteous anger at both the trampling of his perfections and his beauty and his glory, and at the harming of other creatures that were made to display his image. Now, this isn't an isolated situation either. Like, this isn't the first time and the last time that the word wrath is mentioned in the Bible, the New Testament often engages its readers with this idea, this reality of God's justice, God's judgment, and the reality of hell, the reality of not inheriting the kingdom of God. And it's a big deal. And so we see Peter, we see Jesus, we see the Old Testament prophets. We see this constantly throughout Scripture. And I'm going to give you two examples here from Paul to two churches. These are two churches he's writing. 
Ephesians 5 says this, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. And then we got Galatians 5 that says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, I can almost feel the tears in, his, in the strain in his voice as he says this, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so Paul is warning, he is pleading with these Christians who he loves. And he's saying, <laughs> don't do these things. Don't do these things. Now the question we have is why, is, why is he warning Christians? Because doesn't he know that they've been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ? 1 Peter 1.19. Doesn't he know that Jesus will lose none that the Father has given him. None. John 6, 39. And doesn't he know that God will himself keep them from stumbling and present them blameless in the end? That's Jude 24. And the answer to all those is yes, Paul knows this. Paul preaches this. All that belong to Christ, all that are in Christ, will certainly make it to the end without question. So why mention wrath here in a letter to Christians? Why mention that people who do these things will not inherit the kingdom of God? There are three reasons that I see in this text. Number one is this. God is really this holy. He's really this holy. And he will not, he refuses to allow anyone to treat him the very source and focus of all reality. This is God as though he is not that. He won't allow that forever. All worth and all value and all beauty in our universe hangs on one nail, God's own worthiness. Remove the nail, that all collapses. And when you assault God's worth by telling him how he ought to run the universe, you know, I'm going to define sexuality like this. I'm going to define how ethics, ethics in the workplace like this. I'm going to define how to interact with people of a different ethnicity than, than the way you define God. When you assault that, you are undercutting everything good in reality because you are undercutting the source of all goodness. And if God is a good God, if he's a just God, if he is not a wicked, evil, capricious God, he will respond to the trampling of that absolute worth and that glory with justice he will respond with wrath. Just like we would respond, for example, if we, if we heard about the innocence of a child being trampled. Or we heard about someone who was innocent being victimized and abused. We wouldn't respond with neutrality. We would respond to that with justice. We would say, there needs to be justice here served. And God is no different. Romans 3, 4 says, let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, and then Paul's quoting a passage from the Old Testament, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Which means that it doesn't matter what every single human being in the world for all time has thought. 
The only thing that matters is that God will always be true. He's the meridian. He's the standard. He will always be justified in his words, and he will always prevail when people judge him because he is God. (laughs) Now, Virginia Stem Owens has some very strong words, very strong words, to say to those who would seek to overthrow God's God's being judge over the world. This is what she says. Let us get this one thing straight. God can do anything he damn well pleases, including damn well. And if it pleases him, God, to damn, then it is done ipso facto well. God's activity is what it is. There isn't anything else. Without it, there would be no being, including human beings, presuming to judge the creator of everything that is. That's heavy. God is holy. These things don't come into the Bible because they're made up. This is a reality that we're, we're seeing here. When God is exerting wrath or there's wrath being revealed in the scriptures, it's because it, it reflects the moral horror of sin against a very holy and wonderful God. That's number one. Here's number two. Paul knows in writing this letter and in preaching to a church, he knows that not everyone in the church, not everyone who goes to church on Sunday, not, not everyone who, who's involved in church activities, not everyone who's living a moralistic life actually belongs to Christ. Not everyone who claims to trust in Jesus actually does trust him. Some people don't. And so for us and for Paul to make an assumption that because they all meet on Sundays, because they all do these Christian things, they can, he can just skip over hard realities like this would be a huge mistake. Paul knows that this, this reality is true. And so he often issues warnings in his letter. And his goal is that by communicating the gospel of Jesus Christ, which includes God's justice over sin towards rebel sinners and real warnings that those who don't believe would actually come to repentance and trust in Jesus. That the severity of God's justice as a reflection of his resplendent glory and his worthiness would cause people to turn from their unbelief and say, I need a savior. I need to trust Christ Jesus. Romans 2 says, God's kindness to those who say they love him but don't really love him is meant to lead them to repentance. God wants them to repent. He wants them to say, I can't do this on my own. I need Christ. And Paul's hope for unbelievers right now in the church is that they would repent and believe. Now that's the second reason. So these are the first two reasons. The third reason for Paul to talk about wrath is the one that I want to focus on today. Paul is telling Christians to put to death the deeds of their sin because God's wrath is coming for those who live in sin. Those who walk in sin and refuse to fight these inclinations will not inherit the kingdom of God because ultimately they don't belong to Christ. The author of Hebrews, for example, says this, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So Paul's saying, 
if we are, the author of Hebrews is saying, if we hold our original confidence to the end, it will prove that we have come to share in Christ, that we are in Christ, that we are united with him. So the nature of real, authentic, saving faith isn't simply a set of propositions. It isn't simply a religious tradition or a regularity of you going to church on Sundays. It isn't um, even a confession you make with your mouth, but don't live out with your heart. Real, true, and saving faith will hold you fast to Christ to the very end. We won't ultimately fall away from the living God. We won't find in our, in our souls an evil, unbelieving heart. We won't. Um, and Paul's reason for including these warnings to the church is part of the reason to make that happen. He's producing that reality in them. Now, often what happens is when we run into passages like these, we run into warnings and we read them, we come away with this idea that we need to earn our salvation. We somehow need to earn it at some decisive level. Salvation isn't something that uh, we get by grace. We have to merit it through good works or by not sinning, like Paul's addressing here. They would, and we would say, seeing this text and being surprised at the way it's unfolding, the Christian life might begin by faith alone, but these texts must mean that there's some kind of meritorial system of earning involved. And so a lot of Christians will look at this and they'll be like, this is a major contradiction. This is a problem. Because he's saying one thing here and he's saying another thing there. And they'll, they'll walk away thinking we have to try to earn our salvation by not sinning. Otherwise, we'll receive wrath. But this is where the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ shines exceedingly bright. Because those who are justified by grace alone through faith alone, will never, ever, ever, ever be alone again. Ever. Because God will live inside of them. The Holy Spirit of God will live inside of them. The same God who forgives us for every transgression and wrongdoing we've ever committed and grants to us the perfect, unmitigated righteousness of Jesus Christ is the same God who's committed himself to sanctifying us every single day of our lives. And the radical part about this is in order to accomplish this, he comes to live inside of us. He lives inside of us. Listen to Philippians 2. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so he's talking about obedience, he's talking about sanctification, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Paul tells us here, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work it out. And the Greek here literally means to produce, to bring about, to accomplish. And if we stop with that statement, we would indeed have a major contradiction. But Paul doesn't stop because that's not the gospel. Paul says, yes, work out your own salvation. Bring about your salvation because it isn't you decisively who is doing it. It isn't. It is the living and eternal God who has desired to take up residence in you. This God, think about this. This God created worlds and galaxies. He made stars with the words of his mouth. And he's living inside of you. He is living inside of you. So it makes sense why we should be astonished and tremble as we do this. Your holiness is the work of God. He works in you by giving you the will 
the desire, the inclination, and the work, the effort necessary to do these things. But here's the thing. Part of the way that God works this out in you to accomplish this end is that he inspires the Apostle Paul to tell us of the real coming wrath so that those who refuse to give up their sin know this is the path you're headed on. Paul's saying it is real, but God in the heart of a believer goes to work and he helps us believe that reality, see the holiness of God and be compelled to pursue him and love him Our desire and our delight is to obey him and to do what the image of God in us was always intended to do. But here's the question. If God is doing this in me, this is really the the nuts and bolts of it. If God is doing this in me, why do I still struggle with sin? Why do I still fight this? If he's the one that's doing this decisively, why do I still struggle with sin? And if you're maybe in a frame of mind where you say, I actually don't struggle with sin anymore, 1 John 1.10 says, if we don't admit to struggling with sin, we're liars. So the, the above process, the process of, of God working in and through us to give us will and give us work to do stuff, to glorify him and obey him with, uh, in, for his good pleasure, isn't magical. It isn't automatic. It isn't a light switch. It's none of those things. Sanctification happens in and through us, even if... God is ultimately the source, but it involves our actions, our doing. And that means that we participate in this battle. We participate in this war, even if it's not in a decisive way. We're not going to wait around for God to zap us with holiness. That's not the way it works. We fight sin, and we fight it like our lives depended on it, because we know, ultimately, that God has us. He's got us, and even our will to fight is from him. It's a gift from him. So how does this happen practically? What, what, are the, what are the nuts and bolts? We said from Philippians 2 that God is in us. The Holy Spirit is in us. He's been given to us. But that's a really abstract concept. What does it mean for God to bring about holiness in the life of, of a believer? How does this work? Well, Romans 5.5 5 says this. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So Paul says that when someone comes to faith in Christ Jesus, this act of love by God, of pouring his own love, his own affections into us, is what causes us to recognize that we have the Holy Spirit in us. So what does God love? Who does God love? Whatever that is, we get that when we get the Holy Spirit. And if we don't have God's love in our hearts, if we don't feel compelled by the things that he loves and desires, we haven't experienced this reality. And it doesn't mean that the Christian from day one is fully controlled by the love of Christ and perfect in every way. That's not what it's saying. We may only experience a small fragment of it. Um, But at the end of the day, when we believe, we receive the Holy Spirit. We get God's love, which means that we love God, first list, And we love people because God loves people. They were made in his image. That's the second list. (laughs) And so it says in uh, 1 John 3.14 that we know that we have passed out of death into life. How? Because we love the brothers. That's the litmus test. We love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. So if your faith is in Christ Jesus, 
you have the very love of the creator of the universe in you, coursing through your soul right now. You love what God loves. You delight in what God delights in. And that means, on the flip side, that we hate dishonoring him with actions in our hearts. We hate dishonoring him with actions in our hands. And we hate hurting people because God hates people who are, hates hurt, hate people who are being hurt. Um, and he hates the hurting of people. And so when we do sin, when a believer sins and they've got the love of God in them, we don't make light of it. We don't trivialize it. We run to God and we repent. We say, God, I, I don't want to do this anymore. I love you. I know this isn't your will for me. Help me not to do it. Forgive me of my sins and help me not to do these things anymore. And the only reason that happens in the heart of a believer is because they've got the love of God in them. That's what drives them back to the cross every time that they sin, every time that they slip up. And the reason is, in that moment, our sin is as offensive to us as it is to God, even if we only see that in part. It's because by his Holy Spirit, we are slowly becoming what we behold. Listen to 2 Corinthians 3.18. Paul says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image of one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So think about what Paul's saying here. He's saying, as we behold the glory of Christ, and I'm not just talking about on Sundays, and I'm not just talking about when we have free time. I'm saying we take the book that shows us his glory, and every day we spend time with him, and we take the reality of his beauty, and we press that into our hearts, how loving he is, how gracious he is, how kind he is, how holy he really is. And this is part of sanctification. This is, this is us pressing in to see Christ, to cling to Christ, to cleave our lives to him, which is what we've been talking about the last few weeks. The other part of sanctification happens in the trenches. It happens when we are tempted, every battle that we fight. So what happens at the edge of sinning? Like when we, are, when we feel inclined to do something we know dishonors God, what does that look like? Romans 8 tells us what not to do and what we must do. Romans 8 says this, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So Paul's saying here, if you live by the flesh, you're going to die. And this is not just physical death. He's talking about spiritual death. He's talking about not inheriting the kingdom of God. But he says, if by the Spirit, if by the Spirit of God, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live forever with him. Forever. So how do we, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body? How do we, as believers, kill our sin? Well, Ephesians 6 helps us. You guys know this passage already. Ephesians 6, 17. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So get this. This is the Bible's description of the Bible. This is how the Bible describes itself as a weapon. And not just any weapon. The most powerful weapon in the universe because the Bible is God's word. It was breathed out by God, 2 Timothy 3.16 says. So when this book describes itself, it does not describe itself in gentle terms. It uses war language to describe itself. 
And this book is powerful because there's nothing more powerful than the words of the creator of the universe. Can you conceive of something, anything, more powerful than the words that created everything and that sustain everything, every millisecond of its existence? There is nothing. There's nothing, anything like this in the universe. So how do we use this weapon, the sword of the spirit, to put to death the deeds of the body? Here's the thing. This book is not just filled with events. It's not just, it is filled with events. It's filled with people, but it's not just people, events, places, things. It's filled with promises that God has made for you. Promises that the God of the universe has made for you. And if the Spirit of God is in you, you belong to Christ Jesus. And what that means, according to 2 Corinthians 1.20, is that every promise in this book, every promise in this book in Christ Jesus is yes for you if you belong to Christ. It's yes. And so that means every fight that you have against sin is a fight that you have whether or not you believe that promise, a promise of God for you. Every fight that you have against sin is a, is a fight to whether or not you believe the de- deceitfulness of sin or whether you trust in the promise of God. That's every single fight. There is no sin that is outside of this realm. So here's an example. This is a personal example. This is confession time for me. I got a speeding ticket in Georgia a few weeks ago. I got a speeding ticket in Georgia just a few weeks ago, which is humiliating for me because ever since I moved out here, I drive like an old lady. I really do. Uh, I, so I grew up in Florida, and here's the thing is you don't realize you're an aggressive driver until you actually move to a place where there aren't really many aggressive drivers, and then you realize, man, I am out of place here. I feel like a fish out of water. And I moved down to Redmond. I, I moved into Redmond, which every speed limit in Redmond is like 35 or lower. You're crawling everywhere. And so when I first got here, I was like, I don't understand what's going on. Why is everybody letting other people pass in front of them? Why are they going so slow? I don't get this. Um, they're letting pedestrians cross in front of them. This is madness to me. And I didn't understand it. Um, but then I discovered this. This is actually normal. And the way I was living before was not normal at all. Um, and since then, I've dialed it way back. And I seriously now, in comparison to the way I drew, drove back then, I drive very slow, very slow, Sunday driver every day of the week, except apparently when I'm eight hours deep into a 12-hour trip from Washington, D.C. to Orlando. Then I go back to my old ways, and I love to speed. And I'm not going to give you the details because it's incredibly humiliating. I'll just say this. Everyone was going faster than they should have, and I was passing them. Um, And I was trying to make up time between bathroom stops. We're bringing my kids to their grandparents. And and so what I want to do is this. I want to play back this scene. I want want to invite you into my car. I know I just admitted to being a speeder. I want to invite you into my car, and I want you to get in the car with me and see how this should have gone down, how this should have happened. And uh, my hope is that this will help us see how we are called to fight the sin in us with the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So I get on the freeway from an exit, and I really, really want to go fast. I want to get to my parents' house in Orlando. We are four hours away. We've already been on the road for eight hours, and so I have a choice. I can either go the speed limit and get there in four hours, according to my map situation, or I could, go, I could speed and get there faster. I don't know how fast, but faster than four hours. And so that's the choice. This is, this is the deal. Everyone around me is breaking the speed limit. Everyone is. Everyone's going faster than the speed limit. 
Um, but personally, I still have that choice. I have to make my own decision about what I'm doing in my car. And my flesh is saying to me, okay, come on, Jimmy, everyone, look around you. Everyone is speeding. What's the big deal? Just go fast. Everyone's doing it. Just go faster. And I, it's telling me too, I, probably none of these people are bringing grandkids to see grandparents. I mean, come on now. They're doing stuff. They're speeding for all sorts of reasons, but not that. That's a noble reason. Um, <laughs> so maybe it's okay to speed. This is my flesh talking. But the Spirit of God inside of me <laughs> is saying, those laws are there for a reason. They are there for a reason, a very good reason. God installed the people that made those laws and God installed the people that enforced those laws. And as long as it doesn't contradict his law in this book, it is a good law that we should keep. I should be following the speeding law. So how do I fight with these two opposing sides pulling me in both directions? How do I fight this sin by the Spirit? How do I fight against my flesh by the Word of God, by the promises he's made? Well, if I have my mind set on the things of the Spirit, his book... And if I'm constantly saturating my soul with who Jesus Christ is in God's own words, I will remember Philippians 4, 6 through 7, where God inspired Paul to write, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And Paul's point, God's point through Paul in that passage is that God controls when I get to Orlando, period. Whether it's a second or whether it's four hours or eight hours, God knows exactly when the right time for me to get there is, and he knows everything I need in that moment. And what I need most is not me making excellent time for this trip. What I need most is the peace of God that passes, surpasses all understanding. That's what I need. I need supernatural contentment. That's the most important thing I need in that moment. Despite my flesh wanting to speed, I decide to trust the promise of God and obey. And I believe what he says better than the lie that I should break the law. That's putting to death the deeds of the body. That's what I should have done. And this might seem trivial to some people. It's speeding. And it's not necessarily slander or adultery or something else. It's not these things that we think are bigger and more significant, um, but it's still sin, and it's still true of any sin. This illustration proves to be true every, uh, in any sin that we might be fighting. So the question we ask is this, do I believe God's design is better than my desire? Do I believe that his sovereign hand is better than cutting the corner or better than the fleeting pleasures of sin? Do you believe it in that moment? Because what you believe will matter. What you believe will change how you act. Do I trust what he says in his word? That's the question we need to ask ourselves in the middle of temptation, when we know we're about to head down a path we shouldn't go. Do I trust and delight in God more than this thing? And if I can be real with you, we can listen to sermons all day long. You can listen to this sermon. You can listen to a thousand sermons from, another, from other teachers we can hang out with Christians. We can talk theology till we are blue in the face. We can read books and sit under amazing teachers. But if I'm real with you, if we don't take this, if we don't lay hold of this book daily and take the sword of the Spirit and saturate our hearts with it, we're setting ourselves up for failure after failure after failure after failure in the Christian life. 
Christians take their swords and they go to war in every, against everything in them that is evil, against every inclination to harm other people. Christianity, like true Christianity, has a mean streak in it, not directed to other people. That's not true Christianity. That's false Christianity. But directed to every inclination in our hearts that would dishonor God and harm other people. That's where the mean streak is. And the reason we have this book and the reason we have the Spirit of God in us is because of one thing, the cross of Jesus Christ. We pursue holiness not because we're awesome, not because we're awesome. We pursue holiness because He is awesome. And unlike the situation and scenario that Paul is describing in the book of Colossians, instead of us incurring the wrath of God, Christ stands in the way of that wrath and takes all of it. He embraces all of the justice that is due us and takes it all upon himself. And in doing that, he has purchased for you. Listen, this is important. He has purchased for you every single victory you will have in this fight against sin. He has purchased and bought for it and paid for it by his blood because he has guaranteed every single promise in this book for you. There is no promise there is no promise in this book that is not, is not received in Christ Jesus with a yes. None. There's no empty promise because Christ's blood is infinitely suspi- uh, sufficient. Now, if I can be real with you for a moment, this is something that we have a hard time believing. God is really the only person. He's the only person who has never let you down. He has never lied to you. He has never broken a promise he's made to you. God has never gone back on his word to you. He has always been faithful every single day of your life. Why would we not trust him in the moment of our weakness? Why would we not trust him when we feel drawn to something that's harmful to us? And so I want to close by reading for you a promise from the book of Isaiah. And what I want you to do is I want, I want you to hear it as though it is directed to you from God himself. Erase me from the, the equation that God himself is speaking to you. And I want you to think about it in the context of whatever the sin is that you struggle most with. Whatever the thing you struggle most in yourself that you can't seem to beat. And I want you to hear what God says to you and for you in this promise. And I know that right now we're detached. We're at church on Sunday. I want you to bring this promise with you into tomorrow and tonight, and the week to come, and the weeks to come. In that moment when you are tempted, when you are faced with sin, I want you to believe this. I want you to know that this is real. If you are in Christ Jesus, this promise is for you. This is what God says, Isaiah 41. You whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servants. I have chosen you, and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. This is God's promise for you. Believe it. He really is this God. Trust him with this. Let's pray. 
Father God, we talked about some heavy stuff today. We talked about heavy realities that are not comfortable for anybody to hear and definitely not comfortable for me to say. But they're in your book, and so we know that they correspond rightly with the way things really are. And we also know that in the cross of Jesus Christ, you've made a way for us. And that as we take communion here in the next few minutes, we take these elements, Father. I pray that you would sanctify them first and foremost, that we would feel and know the gospel in taking them, Father. And that as we worship you, Lord, we would recognize that the blood of Jesus Christ is infinitely sufficient to guarantee every promise of God in this book. And so that tomorrow when we are facing a sin that we have never been able to beat before, we would believe the truth of God over the lie of the enemy. We would trust his word instead of the deceitfulness of sin. The fleeting pleasures of sin that will pass away, we would hold on to the cross and hold on to Christ Jesus and say into our hearts, God is with us. He has not abandoned us. He will strengthen us. He will uphold us with his righteous right hand. This is the God we serve. This is the God we loved. He is fighting for us. He's fighting for us. May we come to believe that and see it every single day of our lives. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.